Shalom, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Pesach podcast. Kailat Koleno is in the process of figuring out and experimenting with what it means to be a community during this time of isolation and uncertainty. We've had to put many of our plans for the year on pause, as I'm sure many of you have, but we're trying out new ways of connecting our Kailat and providing us all with meaningful Jewish experiences during this time. This is where this podcast fits in. Over the next two weeks, you'll be hearing from different folks from our team of volunteers, from our Colonial community, our wider Australian community, and some good friends from abroad, as we aim to bring you interesting stories, perspectives, and content related to the major themes and practices of the Chag of Pesach. We're all really excited to share with you what we've been working on, and we hope that you enjoy it, starting now with episode one. The Seder is not just a celebration of Jewish emancipation. When we tell our story of freedom from slavery and the exodus from Egypt, we're reminding ourselves not just of the past, but the present too. Laura Jenna Klausner, Senior Rabbi to Reform Judaism. Pesach is known in the Jewish calendar as the hug, celebrating the liberation of the Jewish people from their lives of slavery from the Egyptians. Whilst for many people, this story of exodus is something that exists in the past, for others, it is a modern-day tale and struggle. Last week, I spoke with Hamed Al-Hayari, owner of Cafe Sunshine, an Iranian cafe in Sunshine, Melbourne's inner west. Hamed told me his story of when he sought asylum from Tehran, Iran. He was fleeing persecution from the Iranian government due to his religious beliefs, as he was an atheist in an Islamic country. I met Hamed 18 months ago when I was volunteering with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and I was blown away by his incredible tale and I'm really lucky to be able to share it with Kaylee Lack-Colano today. From Kaylee Lack-Colano, this is the Pesach Podcast. I'm Hannah. Today, stories of Exodus. Hello. Hello, Hamed. It's Hannah. Hannah, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Thank you. What are you up to today? Nothing. I'm sitting at my cafe, waiting for customers. <laughs> has it been a bit quiet lately? Yeah, it been. It has been quiet since like three weeks ago. Oh no! But it's getting more. Like two weeks ago, it was. Not bad. Then two weeks ago, it's become bad. Last yeah. week, very bad. Now, kind of dead. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's no good. Have you? What have yeah. you done? Anything different because of because of the serving restrictions? Have you been doing things a bit differently? Yeah, I start the takeaway. Only takeaway. Okay. And yeah, I put my food in the container, food container, so. People come to take away. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I hope this, this I started this like a week ago. Yeah. Hope people come. I'm trying hard. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, we met a couple of years ago. I don't think you maybe don't remember, but you drove with me in the food van one day and you were telling me about how you ended up coming to Australia. And I remember your story very clearly. It was amazing. And in a couple of weeks' time, we have a festival coming up, which is called Passover. Have you ever heard of Passover? No, never. 
So it's a it's a festival about um, the Jewish people leaving Egypt. So it's a festival all about freedom, um, freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression. And, and I, I remembered you telling your story and I thought it was something really interesting that was kind of a little bit related. So, yeah. what, so I thought it would be really cool to speak to you about your experience and also what you're doing now. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to share my story. <laughs> okay, my name is Hamed. Hamed. Allah Yari. Allah Yari is my surname. And I'm 30 years old. I came from Iran at 2012 to Australia. And yeah, almost like seven years here. And yet, Iran, yeah, I grew up in Tehran, capital city of Iran. Mm-hmm. And I had a good life. I had everything in my country. But things happened and I became atheist in my country so that's the things you cannot change your religion when you're born muslim in iran when your parents muslim you can't do that you cannot become christian jewish or like atheist but i i became and then i took a risk because in iran if government found out that they could hang you and then Actually, they found that in 2012, in one week, I left everything behind and I, like, ran away, ran away from Iran to Australia. Mm. It was very quick, you know, it's like a long long story, but I make it short, but I uh, mentioned the important part. So I came to Australia by boat. Mm. The reason I came by Australia by boat, because I didn't have time to go to embassy, to get my visa, you know. And it was, I didn't have time. Government found out everything about me. And that time I have to leave my country as AP and quick way, but I didn't know anyone. I found someone in Tehran Grand Bazaar. He said to me, Ahmed, I can help you about this. There is someone in Indonesia. I can share his contact number. He can take you to Australia. So that was the first time I heard about Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So I just tell you how I left in one week okay. in Iran. How I left everything behind. And in the guy in Iran, in Tehran Grand Bazaar, he said, you can go to Australia. So I never prepared one day. I have to leave my country. I never been ready. Mm. But that time was something emergency, urgent, and I just follow his instruction and listen to him. The guy, I didn't know him. It wasn't easy to trust that guy because he asked me like 2000 USD and to give me just number and address of someone in Indonesia, which I didn't know that address exists, that number exists. And he said to me, you shouldn't call from Iran. You have to go to Indonesia. In Indonesia, call that number. Anyway, I just, because I didn't have choice, I said, okay, I have to follow what he's saying. I got visa as a visiting, I get the, my ticket to go to Jakarta as a visiting Jakarta in international airport, Jakarta International Airport. Mm. I got 28 days visa and then... I came out, you know, I had a, a small story in that airport. But anyway, I came out, I went to that address. Yeah. And then in that, that address was the address of motel. I went to that motel and reception was uh, asked, I want to see this guy. His name was Yusuf. 
wow. and then I saw the guy. He came and he could talk in Iranian, and then he's like, "Okay, I'll help you. You have to wait in this motel for two, three weeks, and then I take you to Australia." Wait, two to three weeks. Yeah, he said you, you have to wait two, three weeks. You met this stranger, and he just says, "Come and wait in this motel for two to three weeks." Yeah, and he asked money that same day. You know, when I arrived there, he said you have to pay. And I said to him, "If you be in my problem, can you trust?" He said, "Yeah, you have to trust me. You don't have other option." <laughs> and he was right, you know. <laughs> I paid him exactly on that day. I paid him five thousand USD, and then he to, said, "How did you? But how did you get that money? So you had two thousand USD that you gave seven thousand. Yeah, I had almost like ten, twelve thousand with me that time in Iran. I had some saving. I I sold my car. You know, I had restaurant with other two friends, and I said to my two friends, "I'm selling my part to you." So we were being directed. So they paid me some. Okay. And then I gave my restaurant, and so they become two. And then, yeah, I had some saving. I just uh, go to like exchange in Iran and change my money. I hide my money in my bag <laughs> oh because I got cash. Yeah, and then yeah, I paid him cash. I paid him to five thousand dollar cash <laughs> to the guy, and he said to me, "You have to trust me and wait here for two, three weeks." And then it wasn't easy. It was very difficult situation, difficult decision. Yeah. And then, but I didn't have choice. I said, okay, I paid him. Then after day after that, I saw other people. I saw other people. We saw there. We become friends. And then once, like uh, twice weekly, he came to that motel. And once after two weeks, he said, okay, you cannot stay in this motel. I take you to the villa. Then he he took us to villa. We went to the villa. We were fifteen people. And then we just met each other in that motel. And then it wasn't only our villa; it was another ten villa. But then I found out that later on the boat. <laughs> First I thought, oh, it's only me. Then I realized, no, it's not me. It's, uh, there is other fifteen people. Then after two months waiting in Indonesia, one night the guy he said, "Let's go. It's time." Oh my god! And then we go five hours driving in the truck. We arrived one of the beach. I didn't know where we are. We couldn't see outside. And uh, we they covered the truck, and we it's very difficult even to breathe in. But anyway, after five hours we arrive. We arrive to one of the beach in Indonesia. I don't know what beach, but it was some people, young people, Indonesian people, helping us to go to the boat. But it wasn't big boat, and then that moment I saw, oh, it's not, it's many people. Like we were hundred fourteen people. Wow! <laughs> so you thought there was going like, to be, you thought maybe fifteen people on this tiny boat, but ended up being almost one hundred twenty. Exactly, we become yeah almost hundred twenty. It was so scary. Never I forget that night. Yeah. And the. You know, everyone is scared. Some people were crying. Some people like screaming. They didn't want to do it, but like, you know, you have to make a decision. Everyone doing it. Even me, I feel like should I do it? Should I go back? I feel like some people doing. They leave. They going to the boat, and now I was like, 
I should go, you know. If I'm going to die, it's better to die in ocean. Sharks eating me in ocean, <laughs> but not with my government hands. Yeah. That was the things make me cold, you know. That was every time that comes in my brain. So yeah. it's okay, you know. This is the best way if you're going to die. Uh, wow. So, yeah, it was a, we were like the ocean were flat. Ocean were flat and we arrived after 38 hours, which was quick. That was quick to compare with other boats. Yeah. I, when, when we arrived to Christmas Island, you know, when we arrived government put us in Christmas Island to do checks, yeah. those other things. And then I was there for five months. And I saw many other people. We talked to each other. And then the quickest boat was us, our boat. Other people. I saw people, they've been in the ocean for 11 days. Oh you know, I saw people, their water finished, their food finished. They were in the ocean for eight days, wow. eight, 11 days, 15 days. Lots of different stories. You came, yeah. you arrived in Australia, and then did you get taken to Christmas Island? We arrived direct to Christmas Island. Oh, you arrived so from okay. Jakarta. When we uh, catch that boat, yeah. the captain just take us, took us to the Christmas Island. Yeah. yeah. We saw the island, and we go near the island, and we realize, oh, this is a Christmas Island. Then in Christmas Island, they keep us for five months but it's different you know some people two weeks some people two months some people five months some people one year i know people been in i in detention center for six years oh my god friend, he was six years in detention center and, and did you get told yeah. you were there did you get told any information did you get told how long you were going to be there for or you just had no. no one telling us first night we arrived it was very awful which was you know we went in christmas island everyone was it was dinner time it was a big like a warehouse and lots of table and chairs people were eating dinner and the guy who was general anyone who was there in charge he came there and in the bad way talking to people and said none of you will go to australia oh my god we will send all of you to manus island to uh, Papua New Guinea Hi. and don't think that and people and then when the people heard that it's like so sweet like wow we did all of this to go to Australia but this guy telling us no you can't go to Australia <laughs> that night you know you had a big journey already in ocean you arrived to that island first night you heard that and it wasn't good, you know, it wasn't a good moment. But the good things I remember in Christmas Island, it's like a memory. People who was working in Christmas Island, those officers, you know, most of them I remember they were from uh, New Zealand. They are Kiwis, mm. ways. And then they came to us and they said, like, don't worry, guys, don't worry, you will go to Australia. But be a pa be patient. We will go to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> After five months in in um, Christmas Island, did you then were you then like able to leave? Then you came to mainland Australia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
So after five months, we they came, you know, they tell us, Yo, this is, you have to go, you have to leave. Uh, and then they take us with plane to Australia. Mm. We came to Australia. Okay. And then we came, the people who was there in Christmas Island, it was like they didn't know where these people taking us. Yeah. Sometimes they taking people to Thailand. Sometimes they take people to Australia, and it's so random, and you don't, you never know which where they're going to take you. <laughs> so in, after Christmas Island, first we go to Adelaide for two weeks. After Adelaide, I came to Melbourne, and then in Melbourne. Uh, it was like uh, we came to Melbourne, we didn't know anyone, it was a new country, no language, you don't know how to speak English, only a little bit I learned in Christmas Island. And then it's like a newborn baby who needs to learn how to work, how to talk, how to, you know, culture, you know, everything new for us. And then... Red Cross were supporting us. I had caseworker who was helping about finding the house to rent, about like Mikey, we didn't know what's Mikey car, we didn't know how to travel, where to go, like those kind of things, where to shop. Yeah. And then they were helping us those first days, first years. Yeah. Um, but the unfortunately time we didn't have a work right, study right, which mm. was painful because we couldn't work. All right, uh, the 2015, I received my visa. I went to find job. I went to the city with my visa and my CV. I tried many restaurants and cafe asking managers, owners, who was in charge that time to give me a job. And I explained to them, I'm a Persian chef. I can cook all Iranian food. I'm looking for a job. Can you help me? People asking me first about reference, or sometimes they say to me qualification, or if you don't have qualification, do you have reference, or leave your CV, we will contact you, or sorry, we have enough people in our kitchen. So I had those answers. So after, after trying to see 50, 60 restaurants, I didn't hear anything. Only one person after a week called me, and he said to me, uh, you came and looking for a job. I had dishwashing job for you Friday night, Saturday night for $8 per hour. Oh <laughs> and then I said to him, you know, I cannot come. What I did, I went to the ASRC, start volunteering in the kitchen. Yeah. ASRC, as you know, there are big kitchen every day. They're feeding 200, 250 people. And it was a good for it was good start for me to make my reference in SRC. Then I went there. I start cooking some Iranian food for those people. Lots of people come to me asking me where are you from, what this food from, and it was good for them. It's, and I found out this Iranian food is something new in Australia. Mm. I was there every Wednesday and Friday cooking with other people in the kitchen. I was doing like a volunteering. Job. And then one of my friends one day in 2016 came to me and said, Hamid, if you're looking for a pay job, there is a good opportunity for you because there is a place called Philippe. They're looking for a chef from different culture. 
and you can teach your food to other people. And now I called a number. I talked to the like uh, directors of Fit Fit, and I start my cooking classes in 2016. Every weekend, first it was one day, one day weekly. Then my cooking classes become very popular. Sometimes three cooking classes in the week. Wow! In three years, I was working 2016 till 2000. Uh, end of 2018 and then in like three years I had I did 211 cooking class almost 210 cooking class in um, Tomberi I street sometimes I went to the people houses like people become host I took equipment ingredient in their houses and I was running my cooking classes there with those people Amazing. Yeah, over 2,500 people, they came in my cooking classes and I was so happy to sharing my country food with those people. And I was enjoying my job, you know, sharing my country food. And that is my dream. Yeah. At least uh, Australian try Iranian food at least once in their life. There is many people, they don't know about Persian food yet. You know, they haven't tried Iranian food yet. Yeah, it's my dream to just at least, you know, once they come to try Iranian food. Yeah. And in my cooking class, almost that happening. Then after that, I start my catering business with three of my friends. It was first myself, then it became popular. And I employ some asylum seekers who's yeah. like me, who doesn't know much English language who doesn't have reference qualification from Australia, but they could cook. So we start together cooking food for like a catering, like a, like a wedding party, birthday party. And then in like last year, July, I started this cafe with one of my friends together. What's your cafe called? It's called Salamati. Yeah. Salamati is one word. It means cheers in my language. Salamati. Actually, the original is like T-I, but I changed T-I to T-E-A uh, because I serve in Salamati lots of Iranian tea, like nice. sour cherry tea, saffron tea, caramel tea, Persian air grey, and Persian black tea. Delicious. Lots of different tea, yeah. And I was thinking, okay, Salamati, the T-I at the end, I make it T-E-A because I have lots of And what was business like? As in, I know in the last month it's not been so good because of the virus, but what was business like before then? Were you busy? Super busy. Super busy. Super busy. It's like uh, many people can always pack. Some nights I didn't have empty tables, so people were standing outside to to get the table, you know. Yeah, before before all of this. And something I should say about this cafe. Yeah. So the main reason I opened this cafe, you know, yes, of course I had dream to open my restaurant one day in Australia. But the another thing there is many people who come to Australia, they are new and they can't talk English very well. They don't have reference, they don't have qualification, but they're looking for a job. Yeah. You know? There is many people, what's happened to me, it's not only me. There are many people, this happened to them. They couldn't find 
their first job in Australia. What I start, I start social enterprise cafe and restaurant to support people, refugee asylum seekers who's looking for a job, who wants to get experience, who wants to get be to be part of community. And some people they don't have confidence to be part of community. We bring them, I talk to them, I tell them my story, and I said to them, this happened to me. So it could happen, this, it's happened to me, it could happen to anyone. Yeah. Just start from now and work together. So by now I have 11 workers who's wow. working here, not same time, but they have like casual job, yeah. part-time, and they are asylum seekers and refugees. They learned here how to make food. They're learning how to make a good coffee. You know, we have head barista teaching them, training them to make a good coffee. And this is what we are doing right now. None of them is here because, to be honest, it's quiet. We're not, I can't afford to pay a wage. Yeah. But hopefully, again, everything sorted out after this virus yeah. and all back to their normal life. Yeah, and I just had a couple couple of final questions. I just want to ask, like, so you, you went on this amazing journey and you said that you came to Australia and you didn't know anyone and it was really hard, but now that you've been here for a few years and things like that, what do you think is the importance of community? Like, how important is that for you? Yeah, it's very important. First two years, because I didn't know anyone, like 2002 or 2013, 14 I didn't have friends. I didn't know much about here. You know, I didn't feel I'm part of community. Yeah. And then those days, to be honest, I was depressed. Yeah. I was taking depression, depression medication, depression medication, what they call it. Yeah, depression tablet. And it was difficult for me those days till I get myself to the community. I feel like I'm personally living in Australia, like other people. Mm. Don't shy if you can't speak English very well. Don't shy, try to talk, you know, because that's the most important things. When you don't know the language, you feel shy to talk. I, I was like that. I know many people, they feel same. They feel shy to speak speak the language they can't but even two people there is some people they know some but they still they don't want to talk and that means they cannot be social and then if you're not social what will happen to you you stay home alone lonely and then after a couple of months you feel like you're depressed and that's true you know because you don't have when you're lonely it's like make you depressed yeah. And then, yeah, that's that. But community is helps me a lot, especially yeah. in ASRC. When I was volunteering in kitchen, next to me was people from Australia volunteering, and you know, put their time, share their time for like free for volunteering their time, and spend their time to cook for some asylum seekers, for people, people who works there, who's volunteers there. And those people, they're all nice people, and I love them. I still have contact with some of them. And then some of them, I remember on Wednesday, the kitchen manager, her name was Jen. She was helping me about my English language. You know, sometimes when I start to talk, if I didn't know 
to say the word or I made the wrong sentence, she was correcting me. She was correcting me. And that was very helpful, you know. Slowly, slowly, I start to talk. Now I need, I still need to more, obviously, more practice, more English language. But it's much, much better than first days. No, your English is amazing. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I watch many movies. <laughs> watch many. Um, I just want to ask you one last question, yeah. and then I'll let you go. So I told you before that that Passover, the Jewish holiday that's coming up, is all about freedom. I want to know what does freedom mean to you? Well, freedom is like uh, me now telling to my friends I'm atheist. Freedom to me is like. Now I don't scare people, government going to arrest me because I now in podcast yes. talking about <laughs> my government, behind my government. You know what I mean? This is freedom. Yeah. In Iran, you cannot do this. You know, if you, for example, podcast person making like an article, if you do something small, small against government, you're going to be in Evin jail. Evin jail is like political jail. They're taking people in that jail. If you are example, like you become atheist, if you don't follow the religion, if you become against religion in Iran, they can hang you, you know? Yeah. You're gonna, you should be lucky they put you in jail all your life, but the law is like they can't hang you. So that is, this is now freedom. I'm talking in podcasts, telling who I am, and don't scare about government. Well, thank you so, so much. This was like an amazing conversation. Your story is just unbelievable. And I'm really excited to share it with everyone. No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much to Hamed for giving his time and sharing his, what I'm sure you'll all agree, an unbelievable story. He was so excited to be able to spread the word about what he went through and what he's currently doing. Salamati is continuing to function as a takeaway restaurant for delicious Persian food, including salads, hummus, falafel, amongst other tasty treats. If you're in need of some variety in your diet, which I definitely am, we strongly encourage you to check out the menu. Hamed also offers catering through his company. Check out the episode description for links to all details regarding the cafe and the catering company. And I promise you the food is delicious. Each year at Pesach, we read the line from the Haggadah. In every generation, a person is obligated to see themselves as if they had left Egypt. This is a crucial reminder that these discussions of oppression, freedom, slavery and liberation are as much an alarm to the injustices in the present as they are an act of historical imagination. It is an obligation to open our eyes to modern versions of slavery and a call to champion human rights, combat oppression and pursue tzedek, justice, for all oppressed peoples. Hamed's story is just one example that we wanted to share with you as we approach the hug of Pesach of countless others who have fled their unsafe homes and sought asylum and freedom. 
As Hamed mentioned, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides necessary resources and community for those who have recently sought asylum in Australia. The ASRC has remained open during the COVID-19 pandemic and continues to provide basic services for their members in this drastic time. Most of their members are not able to access basic government payments such as Centrelink and rental assistance and have lost any form of income they may have been receiving through paid work. The ASRC are taking donations of money at this time via their emergency cash appeal. For more information, please check out our episode description. Thanks for listening. Episode 2 will be out in a couple of days. Hug some air.